Welcome to this new nutrition business podcast. My name is Julian Mellantin, and today I'm going to talk to you about the secret history of cholesterol-lowering foods. Now, I admit that sounds like an obscure subject, and at this point you may be asking yourself, quite understandably, why are you listening to this podcast, and what can you possibly learn from this secret history? Well, it's a story from the past, but it's a story for our times. It's a story of how some rich investors and giant international food and pharma companies thought they could create a whole new category of foods, change people's diets, and make themselves billions of dollars in the process. And it's a story of how they failed spectacularly. It's also a story of how difficult it can be to commercialize nutrition science and how easy it is to fail. And the lessons from this case study of failure in science commercialization are just as relevant today as they are when the events which I'm about to describe took place. And the lessons are relevant because in 2021, we're in another cycle in which some people are ignoring the lessons from the past and setting out to change the way we all eat. And who are these people? Well, they're mostly Silicon Valley investors, billionaires like Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos, and a few multinationals like Nestle. Between them, they've already invested over $7 billion, a number that's rising all the time, in the belief that they can, in their phrase, quote, disrupt the food system and change your food choices. Their investments assume that technology can change everything and that people will always be happy to eat technology. The examples of what these investors are backing include cell-based meats. That means meat created by biotechnology in a lab, which is already on sale in Singapore. And even using biotechnology to replace human breast milk. And if that last example sounds just a bit too far-fetched, it's not. One of the companies working on it, called Turtle Tree Labs, recently raised $10 million from investors, including, guess who? Yes, Bill Gates. Our story takes place between the 1990s and the first decade of the 21st century. Back in 1995, when we started New Nutrition Business, if there was one area of the food industry whose growth potential was being talked up more than any other, it was about using foods to improve heart health and reduce people's risk of cardiovascular disease. And it seemed like every day you'd stumble over some piece of consumer research in the media saying foods to improve heart health were what people wanted more than anything else, and specifically foods to lower cholesterol. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with cholesterol, it's a lipid, a type of fat, which occurs naturally in the human body. It's a component of human cell membranes. It plays an important role in brain function, for example. And there's even a scientific point of view that if you don't have enough cholesterol in your system, that can contribute to increased risk of Alzheimer's. But it's also the case that excess cholesterol in the bloodstream is something which has in the past been associated with increased risk of heart attack and cardiovascular disease. And I say in the past, because that used to be the consensus view, certainly at the time we're talking about now. Now, it's not so clear today whether that's true or not. And this is a big controversy in science. 
And I'm not going to discuss the controversy about whether or not cholesterol does cause heart disease, because that's just too difficult. But for the purposes of our story, back in the 1990s, that absolutely was the scientific consensus. The role of cholesterol in your blood supply and how that might cause you to have a heart attack had been studied from the 1940s onwards, and its relationship to food really came into the spotlight in 1984. In that year, the US National Institute of Health, which is a US government-funded body that conducts scientific research, concluded, quote, elevated blood cholesterol is a major cause of coronary artery disease. It has been established beyond a reasonable doubt that lowering elevated blood cholesterol levels will reduce the risk of heart attacks. Close quotes. We often see people claiming that the food industry doesn't allow itself to be influenced by the demands made by public health nutritionists, and that public health nutritionists are ignored by greedy food companies. In fact, the opposite is true. Now, why that is, is a subject for another occasion, but certainly in the story of cholesterol-lowering foods, public health was one of the big drivers of the attempt to create this new market. After 1984, university researchers and food companies responded to growing public health pressure to do something about the connection between diet and heart disease. And they investigated ways to produce foods that lower your cholesterol and therefore reduce your risk of a heart attack. There were two schools of thought. One was about creating new types of food by adding to foods science-based, clinically researched ingredients that could be shown to lower cholesterol. The other school of thought was focused on researching foods which might have a natural and intrinsic cholesterol-lowering health benefit, foods such as the humble oat. The attention of academic researchers, and as we will see, Wall Street investors and pharma companies soon became laser-focused on the first of these two approaches. After all, it seemed like a good way for pharma companies to use their life sciences know-how to create new food technologies, technologies which everyone thought could be protected with patents, and then they'd be used to generate a huge stream of profits by selling packaged consumer foods based on these technologies. Pharma companies in particular could understand this business model. It is, after all, the one on which the pharma industry is based, and they thought that applying their know-how could transform the somewhat unexciting and conservative food business. Now, the first breakthrough in this high-tech revolution began, to everyone's surprise, in Finland, led by a small company called Riceo. Now, you've almost certainly never heard of Riceo, and why should you? Back in the 1990s, Riceo was a pharma-owned company. And by pharma now, that's F-A-R-M-E-R, guys with plows, not pharmaceutical company. And it was best known for processing wheat and potatoes and producing margarine. In fact, Riceo was the market leader in margarine in Finland with a 50% market share. Finland, a small country with a population of only 5 million people, is covered in trees. In fact, 78% of Finland's land area is trees. And in particular, Finland has a lot of pine trees, well suited to the climate of a country which is one of the northernmost on planet Earth. To give you an idea of how far north it is, Moscow is about 250 kilometers to the south. You won't be surprised to learn that Finland is one of the world's biggest producers of wood pulp and forest products. And one of the things you can extract from pine trees is a natural compound called plant sterols. It was already known back in the 1950s that plant sterols, 
if you could get them inside people's bodies, had the effect of reducing their blood cholesterol. But it wasn't until 1988 that university researchers in Finland began to focus on whether plant sterols could be included in regular foods. And the idea of using sterols as a food ingredient was first suggested to Ricio by a professor at the Finnish University of Turku. Now, it was no accident that Finnish researchers were looking at improving heart health. Finland already had a history of public health policy aimed at tackling the country's historically very high level of heart disease. It was focused on improving diet, and the food industry had already been encouraged for several years to create heart-healthy foods. Now, the problem with plant sterols is that they're actually not very soluble. That means you can't easily blend them into foods or drinks. But to his credit, the head of research and development at Ricio, Ingmar Vesta, and his colleagues found a way to overcome this problem. They discovered how to combine the plant sterols with the vegetable oils that the company was using to make margarine. This was a breakthrough in food technology, and it led, in 1991, to Ricio applying for a patent for the resulting combination, a patent which was finally granted in 1995, and a global patent. Ricio called this ingredient technology Benacol, which was a kind of a bit of play on the words bene, meaning good, and cholesterol. Being a responsible company, Ricio had already set out to establish what exactly were the benefits which science could substantiate for Benacol. They conducted randomized clinical trials, which are the scientific gold standard. And the tipping point for their research came in November 1995, when the prestigious New England Journal of Medicine published a long, double-blind, placebo-controlled crossover clinical study, which is a very long way of saying a study to the highest standards. And the study concluded that people who ate Benacol experienced a 10% fall in their total cholesterol and a 14% fall in something called the LDL cholesterol. Now, some of you may have heard of LDL before. It's often referred to as the bad cholesterol. And it was thought certainly at the time, and some people still argue, that's the type of cholesterol that causes you to have a heart attack. The publication of this study in the New England Journal of Medicine coincided with the launch by Ricio of a margarine in Finland in November 1995, and they're called the margarine Benacol, of course. The selling price was four times the price of butter, but it absolutely flew off the shelf. Finnish consumers had already been told for a decade by public health experts to look out for products that supported their heart health. Benacol was a solution from a trusted local brand using trusted local ingredients. For a time, Ricio was barely able to keep pace with demand. What happened next was that the investment world noticed. Ricio's shares were quoted on the Helsinki Stock Exchange, and it wasn't a very exciting share to own because it mostly processed potatoes and grains and made margarine, none of which are very exciting high-growth businesses. All that changed in the spring of 1996, within six months of the launch of Benacol, when US investment bank First Boston said that the patented Benacol technology would be worth a billion dollars in just a few years. Now, quite where they got this estimation from, nobody knows. But one of the most important things you must generally bear in mind, which is as true now as it was then, is that you mustn't trust anything that an investment banker tells you about how much a technology or a business is going to be worth. Investment bankers are salesmen. They exist to sell shares and investments. They are not bound to stick to truth based on facts. 
And in fact, Roycio's management protested at this investment. They said this was a wild overestimate of the value of their patents and their market potential. Roycio's protests were to no avail. There followed a frenzy of speculation in the company's shares. Foreign investors piled in, and foreign ownership of the shares grew from just 10% to 68% in the space of a few months. The Ricio share price jumped by 900% in the expectation that this technology would yield extraordinary profits. Now, in the background, Ricio had been looking around for a way to commercialize its technology. And the stock market's expectations were only heightened when Ricio announced that it was going to license the technology in exchange for an initial payment of $50 million to an American company called McNeil Healthcare. McNeil was part of the Johnson & Johnson Pharmaceutical Group. And the idea was at this time that if you were talking about heart health and cholesterol lowering, this was a benefit somewhere between food and medicine, neither a food nor a drug. It was widely believed that the only people who'd be able to sell foods with health benefits would be pharmaceutical groups. Now, this hope was given urgency as far as pharmaceutical companies' managements were concerned, because then, as now, they were faced with the reality that their pipeline of new drugs, which generates extraordinary profits, was starting to get a bit empty. And as a result, a lot of them were looking to food and health as the next big investment opportunity. The McNeil-Benicol deal was seen by stock market investors as a perfect example of how new food technologies would be commercialized in the future and how the food industry would be transformed by healthcare groups like McNeil, who, it was argued, would bring scientific know-how and the knowledge of how to market branded health products. The supermarket, everyone said, would be transformed. Now, so far, the Benicol technology had only been used in margarines. McNeil, of course, wasn't in the margarine business, and indeed had no knowledge whatsoever of this category. But they, and everyone else, didn't seem to think that that mattered. McNeil launched its own Benicol-branded margarine in the United States in late 1998. It was one of the biggest launches in the history of food. McNeil was convinced that technology was so powerful that it was guaranteed to succeed. McNeil invested $100 million just in advertising and promotion to support the launch of the brand. And what was the reward for this $100 million investment? In its first year, Benicol achieved sales of just $30 million. In fact, sales never exceeded $40 million a year. Now, $40 million may sound like a lot, but in the context of huge US consumer markets, that's a drop in the ocean. Benicol margarine was a colossally expensive failure. Undeterred, McNeil next tried Benicol-branded nutrition bars, salad dressings, dairy drinks, and pretty much anything you can think of. All of them carried the approved cholesterol-lowering message, all based on the technology none of them sold. The brand lingered for about 10 years, effectively as a niche brand, until McNeil, having lost at least $200 million, and probably a lot more, exited the business. Meanwhile, Unilever, seeing that McNeil was going into the margarine category with a product for lowering cholesterol, decided it should do the same thing. Unilever had already been in the margarine and spreads business since the 1950s, selling brands like Flora and Basel based on polyunsaturated fats 
as healthier alternatives to butter. Now, it's often said that it's important to have a patent. And a patent gives you intellectual property, and it's a moat for your business. In many industries, this is true. But in the food industry, that's usually not the case. Food industry patents are remarkably easy to get around. And in fact, investing in patents for food processes and ingredients is a colossal waste of money more often than not. And that's what happened with a Benacol patent. Unilever used its scientific know-how to create a cholesterol-lowering, plant-sterile-based technology all of its own. And within a year, had launched its own cholesterol-lowering margarine, sold under the flora name in some countries, and base cell in others. Now, for a while, this product sold pretty well and was very profitable because it was a 400% premium to regular product. But this was much more so in Europe than in the US. However, this business finally plateaued around 2010, and after that began a long slide. In fact, Unilever exited the margarine business completely in 2017, faced with an almost irrevocable decline in its business. Food industry executives, however, are nothing if not optimists. Undeterred by the failure of Benacol, from the late 1990s up until about 2005, lots of other companies tried to launch cholesterol-lowering products in pretty much any category you can think of. Coca-Cola, for example, launched a brand called Heartwise, under its Minute Maid orange juice brand, and this was a cholesterol-lowering orange juice. Coca-Cola thought that the problem with the McNeil strategy was they were charging too big a price premium. So they launched this orange juice at exactly the same price as regular orange juice. Unfortunately, that didn't work either. Just like McNeil's margarine, they got sales of maybe $30 million, and the brand was eventually withdrawn. General Mills, the world's 10th biggest food company, has a snack bar brand called Nature Valley the biggest nutrition bar in the US market. And they launched a heart-healthy, cholesterol-lowering version of Nature Valley, which achieved sales of $15 million. That's one five before it was withdrawn. Yoplait and many others launched cholesterol-lowering dairy drinks, yogurts, and pretty much anything else you can think of. None of them lasted on the market for more than a year or two. In Europe, Danone did pretty well for a while with a brand called Danacol, which includes a dairy drink and a yogurt with the cholesterol-lowering ingredients. And um, Danacol and Benacol-branded dairy products still exist in many European markets to this day, but as niche propositions. They never achieved the level of sales that was expected back around 2000. So why did cholesterol-lowering foods not work in the way that was originally hoped? Well, there were three problems. And these are exactly the same problems that are faced by most health ingredients and health products that come to market. And understanding them and how to adapt your strategy to them is key to success for anyone who wants to commercialize nutrition science. The first problem is competing with drugs. Quite simply, don't do it. The specially designed foods based on the plant sterols lowered cholesterol by maybe 12 to 15%. Statin drugs, on the other hand, lower cholesterol by 40% and in some patients more. And prescribing statin drugs is the first line that doctors go to. They are trained to give people drugs. They are not trained to give them foods. In fact, the average doctor spends only about 20 hours in their entire training on nutrition. It's also a doctor's job to make sure that they get the best possible effect. So why not focus on a drug which is definitely going to lower someone's cholesterol seriously 
rather than a food, which has a much lesser effect. Unilever tried to get around this for a while by marketing its cholesterol-lowering food as a companion to drugs, the idea being that you would take the drugs and eat the food at the same time. But this didn't really catch on either, because as well as having the drugs, you also have to buy a premium food, which may cost 400% more than the regular thing. So it was neither of interest to doctors and certainly not of that much interest to consumers. The second problem was that the whole premise for selling cholesterol-lowering foods was based on medical statistics, because statistics show that a third of people have elevated cholesterol. And this statistic was the basis for everyone's marketing plan. Marketers and senior executives believed that because of that statistic, the potential market was a third of people. But there's one little problem. Most people don't know whether they have elevated cholesterol or not. You can't see it. You can't feel it. You can't smell it. You can't touch it. You have to be motivated to get a test to find out whether you need to lower your cholesterol. And most people don't get a test until midlife, if ever. And when people do get a cholesterol test, well, there are lots of other things they can do for their heart health. Number one, their doctor can prescribe drugs, or they can change their diet or lifestyle overall. So at the end of the day, these super premium, specially designed foods are just one option competing with many others. The third problem was that the ingredient was a little bit hard for people to accept. People did not know, and still don't know, what a plant sterol is. It's not something that people post about on Instagram. It sounds scientific. It sounds like something out of a chemistry set. And people are wary of putting things inside their bodies that sound like something from a chemistry set. Unless, of course, it's a drug, in which case they're expecting to be putting science inside themselves and they're expecting it to have a really measurable and significant effect. Faced with the choice between putting inside your body a specially designed food based on an ingredient you've never heard of, selling at a super premium price, or just buying a natural food that might do the same thing, consumers actually tended to choose the natural food. And that brings us back to something that I mentioned earlier in the podcast, when I said there were two schools of thought about cholesterol-lowering foods. Now, we've been focused on the first school because that's where the investment bankers and the pharma companies were, and that was about using technology to create specially designed foods. Now we're going to visit the second school of thought, the one that thought you should look for foods that have a natural and intrinsic health benefit. At exactly the same moment in 1998, when McNeil was launching Benacol, and tens of companies were following the same path, a company called Quaker Oats, which sold oats and pretty much nothing else, had petitioned the US Food and Drug Administration to allow it to communicate that consuming oats can lower your cholesterol and support your heart health. And Quaker backed their petition to the FDA with a dossier of science that showed just how the humble oat could do that. The FDA agreed. And soon, the cholesterol-lowering message appeared on Quaker Oats boxes and on the packages of most other oat-based products, such as Cheerios, America's biggest breakfast cereal brand. The same thing happened in Sweden, the UK, Australia, and elsewhere. And soon supermarkets were filled with natural products based on oats, offering exactly the same cholesterol-lowering benefit as the specially designed foods and at a much lower price. 
In response, some of the companies trying to sell the specially designed foods resorted to some quite clever marketing tactics. In Europe, Benacol ran an ad that showed a tiny little bottle of Benacol dairy drink, just a little 100ml bottle, on one side of the ad, and on the other, a picture of three bowls of porridge. This striking image was accompanied by the question that asked, if you want to lower your cholesterol, which would you rather have? Three bowls of porridge or the little bottle? Consumers, however, decided they preferred to eat the three bowls of porridge. But it didn't stop with oats. The media, now as then, loves to fill space on websites with stories about the possible intrinsic health benefits of natural foods. They don't need a health claim, there doesn't need to be a lot of science, but there needs to be just enough for a journalist to have something to write about. As the science evolved from 1998 onwards, consumers started to learn from the media about the wealth of things they could eat to support their heart health. Almonds, walnuts, oily fish, cocoa, dark chocolate, red wine, pomegranate juice, and many others. Sales of all of these foods grew steadily. By contrast, while the sales of natural products grew, sales of the cholesterol-lowering, specially designed foods either died or the brands continued to exist as a niche proposition. What became of Riceo, the innocent Finnish company whose technological innovation had triggered all of this explosion? Well, the investment bubble burst as the foreign investors realized they had been pursuing a dream entirely of their own making. Riceo's share price plunged. 20 years later, the Riceo share price has never got back to where it had been driven by speculators back in 1998. One of the biggest lessons of the last 25 years is that people like to get their health benefits from foods they can easily understand and accept. And if you are competing with a natural food, it doesn't matter how smart your technology is. Technology by itself doesn't provide enough of a competitive advantage. And in fact, it may be a complete turnoff. Silicon Valley investors, however, don't seem to have kept up with this story. And at the moment, they're investing massively in new food technologies and are repeating the mistakes of 20 years ago. These people, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, and a whole host of people you've never heard of who mostly live in California, subscribe to the idea of technological determinism. Technological determinism is an idea that technology is an unstoppable force. It will always be embraced by consumers and it will always go on to change human behavior. Among the many fans of technological determinism throughout history have been some very unlikely bedfellows. For example, it was Karl Marx who was actually said to have first articulated the idea. And technological determinism lies at the root of many of the atrocities that took place in the 20th century. In our own time, technological determinism has become a religion for Silicon Valley investors and executives. And they have this worldview because it's worked very nicely for them for the last 20 years. Perhaps the best example is Amazon, which has successfully transferred most of the profit made by booksellers, publishers, and authors to its own shareholders. And Silicon Valley technological determinists think they can disrupt food just the same way that Amazon disrupted publishing and book retailing. Now, one of the things they've overlooked is that in food and beverage, actually, new markets are always emerging. And these new markets are created 
not by extraordinary disruptive scientific inventions and investors, but by the skill of food producers, and in particular, food producers' skill in reinventing old foods, adapting them to modern tastes, and making them more convenient. One of the best examples is the humble almond. In the 1990s, almonds were just a simple, boring snack nut. 20 years later, almonds are one of the most used ingredients in lots of categories in the supermarket. Almonds are used inside chocolate confectionery more than any other nut. Almond milk has become a $2 billion business in the US alone. Greek yogurt is another example. In 2005, Greek yogurt was a little known everyday staple in Greece. It was transformed by Chobani into the must-have yogurt of the United States, and it has the largest share of the US yogurt market, and has also become an immense success in China and many other countries. What did producers do? They took a traditional food from somewhere, they adapted it to a new market and modern tastes and made it more convenient. Essentially, though, the underlying product is not massively different. It's these kinds of traditional foods reinvented, which are the ones that are truly disruptive, and they make the biggest difference. The biggest successes in food and health are not based on radical new technologies, but on traditional foods reinvented and made easier for people to enjoy. People don't like eating obvious technology, and that spells trouble ahead for the Silicon Valley technological determinists, for plant-based burgers, for cell-based meats, for 3D-printed foods, and all the rest. The prospects are not as bright as some people tell themselves. The lessons from the failed commercialization of cholesterol-lowering foods are ones which many companies have relearned over and over again. There's really no need for anyone to repeat these mistakes again, and you won't now you've listened to this podcast. Thank you for listening. I hope you found it enjoyable and useful. You can find out more information about us by going to our website, which is www.new-nutrition.com. I hope you have an excellent day. 